Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We have some great stuff for you today. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. And this was a damn interesting week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. Well, The Guardian is updating us and letting us know that the Italian king of absentees allegedly skipped work for 15 years. I mean, it's a good gig if you can get it. Like, how do they not catch you? <laughs> I know. Anti-hero goals, right? Yeah. And he was a hospital employee in the Calabrian city of Catanzaro, and he continued to be paid a monthly salary, all in all, earning about 645000 US dollars. You know, yeah. no big deal. Not bad. <laughs> He broke the national record by allegedly (laughs) skipping work for 15 years. I like the fact that there was a record to break. Like, they're keeping track of this, and they're like, we know who the guy is, but no, he's not the guy anymore. Now this guy's the guy. I know. I wonder if Greece is looking at this and being like, hmm, should we have, like, an EU record, or is this just the Italy record? But... Regardless, he is now 67 and is finally facing charges of abuse of office, mm-hmm. forgery, and aggravated extortion. And no. not only him, but six managers are also being investigated on suspicion of having played a role in enabling his alleged absenteeism, which is apparently super rife in Italy's public sector. <laughs> huh. So like he was giving him a cut and they were acting like he had been there or something. Perhaps. Oh, um, we don't know. In an okay. investigation code named part-time, police (laughs) gathered their evidence from attendance and salary records, as well as witness statements from colleagues. So in 2016, the government tightened a law against the work shy (laughs) after several high-profile police investigations revealed just how rampant absenteeism was across the public sector. Mm. And in one investigation, police even used secret surveillance cameras to ensnare 35 workers at San Remo's town hall, who had been cheating the time management system for about two years. Wow. The wives of two of the employees were caught using their husband's staff cards to clock on for them, while other staff members clocked on before going canoeing or shopping or even Uh just out with friends. Wow. (laughs) There was also another case unrelated where a police officer was filmed clocking on for work in his underwear because he lived in the same building he worked in. And (laughs) amazingly, he was acquitted of accusations of fraud last year. So, like you uh, were there, you were just in your underwear. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> he may have been undercover in his underpants, but you know, if a police officer could get off with this, it seems like the application of justice is somewhat mixed, but when yeah. is it not? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right. Well, this article from Messy Nessie Chic looks at the history of delivering items by pneumatic tubes. Ooh. And I don't know about you. I have an absolutely childish level of love for these things. Like when you go <laughs> to the too. bank and it sucks your little container up, it's like, oh, they're just utterly delightful. I love them. It feels like one of the only holdovers from like Victorian steampunk chic mm-hmm. that continues to persist today, other than the like penny farthing bicycle, right? Yeah, but that's like a statement. These tubes are in use. <laughs> like people like them. But I'd, I'd always thought of them as being pretty contained 
within a single business. You know, it's like sending memos in an office building or like I yeah. know some big department stores used to send the customer's money up to a single accounting department because they mm-hmm. didn't trust the sales girls with the cash, basically. <laughs> but apparently from 1900 to 1950, the city of New York was using them to deliver more than a third of all the mail that came through the Postal Service. Whoa. So the very first pneumatic tubes were installed in London in 1854 where they were invented by a Scottish engineer named William Murdoch. They were used at that time to connect the telegraph office to the London Stock Exchange so that buy and sell orders could get to the floor more quickly than they could Mm -hmm. be carried by hand. Over the next few decades, similar systems were built in Berlin, Paris, Prague, and Vienna. And in 1893, Philadelphia became the first American city to install them. So when New York City finally got them in 1897, the technology was super established and they went big. So they installed a large tubing system from Station P in the Produce Exchange Building to the General Post Office at Broadway and Park Row. I don't know New York that well. I can't tell you how far that is or even what the Produce Exchange Building does. I've never Mm -hmm. heard of it. But (laughs) it was a distance and it was more than anyone had ever done before. Previously, they'd kind of been using it to replace how fast can a person walk? This tube can go faster. Now they actually were replacing vehicles. Wow. So at the unveiling of the new system, over 100 spectators were present just to see the new technology. And the first delivery sent was a Bible wrapped in an American flag, which it feels like one of those things that's technically illegal. Like there's a special (laughs) way you got to fold the flag. And I don't think it involves a Bible. (laughs) (laughs) But the second item sent was an artificial peach which was a joke for the Master of Ceremonies politician Chauncey Depew, who had previously been called a peach in the newspapers. (laughs) So they sent the Bible, they sent the peach, and then insanely enough, the third item sent through this new system was a live cat. (gasps) Yeah. Postal worker Howard Wallace Connolly wrote in his autobiography, quote, How it could live after being shot at terrific speed and making several turns, I cannot conceive. But it did. So, you know... (laughs) It it was fine. I mean, it survived. Yeah. (laughs) Fine, maybe. I don't want to invalidate the cat's feelings. I'm not gaslighting him. (laughs) And, you know, it's also a little unpleasant to imagine just how they got the cat inside because the tube containers themselves were 24 inches long, which is longer than I was thinking, but just eight inches in diameter. And they weighed 25 pounds. What? Yeah. Each one of them could hold about 600 letters. And before long, the system was transporting more than 95,000 letters per day. It was staffed by a group of 136 dispatchers known as Rocketeers. Nice. The pipes were buried four to six feet underground, and they could provide three to eight pounds per inch of air pressure, which moved the containers at an average speed of 30 to 35 miles per hour. Hey. Yeah. So that reduced what had been a 40-minute route by mail wagon to just seven minutes. Wow. Yeah. So they worked. And I mean, they have some great pictures in the articles of like, you know, a woman who sort of looks like an old school telephone operator, except she's got about 100 tubes all sort of coming down and facing her. And they're all labeled. And she's just, you know, popping things out and putting them in different ones. It's very cool. I love the system. But you're using the past tense, though, which is alarming here. Yeah, they're kind of done with it. Service was briefly halted during World War I to save money. But other than that, the system remained steadily in use up until the early 1950s. And by then, it was starting to show some wear and tear. So, like, letters would sometimes come out of the system with damage from leaking water or gas lines. Aww. Yeah. And so, and anytime one got clogged, they had to literally dig up a street to fix it. You know, this was like an (laughs) underground utility. Yeah. 
And aside from the difficulty in maintaining the system, they were pretty much unable to expand it due to those same growing water and gas lines. You know, as Mm. the population got more dense, they were like, well, do we want to give them mail or do we want to give them water? We could put the mail in a truck, but we really can't put the water in a truck. So the water and gas gets priority. (laughs) Yeah. So in 1953, the recently inaugurated President Dwight D. Eisenhower appointed a new postmaster general named Arthur Summerfield. And he made the unilateral decision to just shut down the pneumatic tubes entirely and switch the whole city to mail delivery trucks. Hmm. Now, it's worth noting that Summerfield owned a stake in a GM auto dealership. And you the don't new- say. Uh-huh. Hmm. And the new fleet of mail trucks sold to the government were all GM vehicles. <sighs> And, of course, New York wasn't the only one, and some cities managed to keep their systems running for a little longer, including Paris, which was using them for mail delivery up until the 1980s. But, you know, for the most part, they just couldn't keep up with the improvements to vehicles and roads above, and they ultimately became less efficient, so they got abandoned. But the tubes themselves are still buried underneath (gasps) New York City and a lot of other places, and some are in good condition, and some people have even suggested repurposing them now to run fiber optic cables for high-speed internet. They're like, we've, mm. we've got this path. It's super easy to just drag a cable through an open tube that's already there. Sure. I mean, that is assuming that the criminal underworld hasn't already assumed ownership over these nefarious underground travel routes. <gasps> oh, my gosh. If they were doing, like, drug deals by pneumatic tube. Oh, I mean, like... <laughs> the infrastructure is already there. You just yeah. need to make sure you've got people at point. I'm not recommending anything right, right. like this. Nothing illegal know. for sure. You're, but You're making uh... me want to try drugs. Like if there's <laughs> medic tubes involved. <laughs> wow, that is a low barrier of entry, Jennifer. <laughs> it's true. It's on me. That's on me. <laughs> Next link. Next link. A little bit of mixed news here from sciencemag.org. Apparently, some nuclear fallout is showing up in U.S. honey decades after the bomb test. Oh, Hmm. man. We eat a lot of honey in my house. Like, that's frustrating. I know. Well, the good news is the levels of radioactivity are not dangerous, but they may have been much higher in the (laughs) 70s and 80s. Okay. Well, I I was only barely a lot. That's fine. That's okay. (laughs) (laughs) A soil scientist named Daniel Richter at Duke University commented, it's really quite incredible. It shows that the fallout is still out there and Mm -hmm. disguising itself even more worrisome, as a major nutrient. Whoa. So how is this happening? Well, you know, in the wake of World War II, the U.S., the former Soviet Union, and other countries detonated hundreds of nuclear warheads in above-ground tests. Mm -hmm. So back in the 50s and 60s, these bombs that we were testing ejected radiocesium, which is a radioactive form of the element cesium. But the spread wasn't uniform. For example, a lot more fallout dusted the U.S. East Coast thanks to regional wind and rainfall patterns. Mm. But radiocesium is soluble in water, and some plants can mistake it for potassium, which is a vital nutrient that shares similar chemical properties. So to see whether plants continue to take up this nuclear contaminant, a geologist named James Cast at the College of William and Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia, gave his undergraduate students an assignment bring back local foods from their spring break destinations, and let's just test it for radiocesium, see what happens. So one student, he returned with honey from Raleigh, North Carolina, and to their surprise, it contained cesium levels 
100 times higher than the rest of the collected foods. He wondered whether eastern U.S. bees gathering nectar from plants were concentrating radiocesium Mm. from the bomb test. So they gathered some colleagues, including some undergrads, and they collected 122 samples of locally produced raw honey, which are usually the buzzwords when you want to get honey, right? You want it locally produced, you want it raw. So they gathered this from across the eastern United States, and from the 122 samples, they found it in 68 of the samples at levels above 0.03 0.03 becquerels per kilogram, which is roughly 870,000 radiocesium atoms per tablespoon. Oh, yikes. <laughs> the <laughs> highest levels of radioactivity occurred in a Florida sample that had 19.1 becquerels per kilogram. Could also explain a lot about the Florida man meme that has been going on for a few years. (laughs) But the U.S. Food and Drug Administration is telling Science Magazine these numbers are nothing to worry about. Hmm. They still fall well below 1,200 becquerels per kilogram, which is the cutoff for any food safety concerns, according Hmm. to the agency. Quote, I'm not worried at all. I eat more honey now than I did before I started the project. And I have kids. I feed them honey. Hopefully not under that threshold where you're really not supposed to give raw honey to children. Yeah. (laughs) Radiocesium does decay over time, so the honey in the past probably contained more of it. And to find out how much more, the team poured through records of cesium testing in U.S. milk, which was monitored out of concern for radiation contamination, and they analyzed archived plant samples. And in both data sets, the researchers found that radiocesium levels had declined sharply since the 1960s, which is a similar trend that likely occurred in honey. Mm-hmm. To look at sort of another recent radioactive disbursement, after the Chernobyl nuclear disaster in 1986, scientists showed that radiation levels nearby could hamper the reproduction of bumblebee colonies. But those levels, granted, were about a thousand times higher than the modern levels that we're talking about here. So Mm -hmm. even though the new study should not raise any alarm bells, understanding how nuclear contaminants move around is still vital for gauging the health of our ecosystems and our agriculture as well as ourselves, right? Sure. We got to understand when we mess with something, there are side effects that happen far away and much longer than we realize. So we can't long term thinking is still a thing. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe we get a superhero out of it. Like a radioactive spider bit Spider Man. Maybe we get some sort of radioactive bee man. You know, I'm not not saying it's worth it. I'm just saying. Yeah. (laughs) You know, if we gotta have something to kind of take on the murder hornets and I I would go with a radioactive bee. Why not? Let's see what happens. We'll find out in fifty years. That's right. Next link. Next Next link. link. All right. Well, this one comes from Science Mag. It's called Gravity-Based Batteries Try to Beat Their Chemical Cousins. Ooh. And this one kind of blew my mind because it's one of those things that's so simple once you see it, but I'd never thought about it before. The key to remember here is that a battery is not a power generating device. It's just a power storing device. Hmm, So like mm -hmm. the little alkaline batteries that we all know and love, they're not nuclear generators. Someone had to invest a certain amount of energy into charging that battery and -hmm. you're never going to get more out of it than you put into it. But it does allow you to hold on to that energy and release it at a time and place of your choosing, which is what makes them useful. Mm -hmm. But while we've sort of settled on chemical batteries for everyday use, there are actually tons of ways of storing energy. Like if I stretch a rubber band between two fingers, it's technically acting as a kind of battery. It's storing the potential energy of the stretch until the moment I choose to release that energy by shooting it across the room. Right. So case in point, another easy way to store potential energy is with gravity. You put energy into lifting something heavy, 
Attach a flywheel, and when you drop it, the downward motion spins the wheel and transforms it into a usable kinetic energy. Okay. And there are a number of companies experimenting with this kind of battery as a way to replace large chemical batteries. They're not so much for small in-home use, but for regulating the overall power supply in cities and power plants. Hmm. So one of these companies is called Gravitricity. It's based in Scotland, and they've just unveiled their latest test model, which involves a 50-ton iron weight suspended within a four-story mine shaft, kind of like an elevator. Mm. So from its full height, it can release up to 250 kilowatts of power back into the grid in as little as 11 seconds. Wow. And, you know, again, it's not free energy, but what it means is that you can draw energy from the grid during off-peak times, like at night, and then release mm -hmm. it later when the demands are higher than the grid can normally sustain. Hmm. So Oliver Schmidt, a clean energy consultant and visiting researcher at Imperial College London, points out that lithium-ion batteries can only be recharged so many times before they lose capacity. Mm -hmm. But the winches and steel cables of a gravity-based battery can hold up for decades. Huh. Also, a big hunk of iron doesn't cause nearly as many environmental problems to create or to recycle. So Schmidt has data showing that the long-term cost of a gravity-based battery is $171 per megawatt hour, while a lithium-ion battery costs around $367 per megawatt hour. So it's hey. less than half. I mean, it's a really big savings, assuming we're willing to build these giant elevator-looking things and drop weights <laughs> through them periodically. Yeah, I wonder if the application, I mean, because lithium batteries are obviously used in a lot of these electric cars that are mm -hmm. starting to get a little bit more mainstream. And it's known that after a certain number of years, they just can't be recharged anymore. You're going to have to replace the battery, which is a pretty hefty investment. But mm -hmm. what if, you know, the watches that have kinetic power where like, as you move your arm in daily life, it just kind of recharges the right. mechanism in the watch. What if mm -hmm. we were to have something like that for our vehicles? Yeah, like you'd be required to swerve a few times. You couldn't drive straight for <laughs> too long. <laughs> right. The, the worse drivers, the more aggressive drivers end up having the better battery life. <laughs> we got potential. That's right. It does literally have potential. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next link. Well, a little bit of good news with all the climate change horror stories we're going through <laughs> at, I guess, the nascent <laughs> infancy of this issue. But the CBC is reporting that scientists have rediscovered a lost coffee species that's actually suited to a warmer climate. So, hey, oh. you know, if climate change is happening, we may still be able to get our caffeine fix via coffee. <laughs> at least we'll be alert as the world that's burns. Right. That's something, right? <laughs> in dense tropical forests in Sierra Leone, scientists have rediscovered a coffee species not seen in the wild in decades. Hmm. The species is known as Coffea stenophylla, and it possesses greater tolerance for higher temperatures than the Arabica coffee, which makes up about 50% of global production, and the Robusta coffee, that makes up about 43%. The researchers found that the stenophylla coffee also had a superior flavor, which was similar to Arabica. Hmm. The botanist named Aaron Davis, who led the study published in the journal Nature Plants, said Stenophila was farmed in parts of West Africa and exported to Europe until the early 20th century before being abandoned as a crop after Robusta's introduction. Hmm. Many farmers throughout the world's coffee-growing belt are already experiencing climate change's negative effects, which is a huge concern for this multi-billion dollar industry. So how do these three coffee species compare? Well, Arabica's flavor is rated as superior and brings a higher price than Robusta, which is mainly used for like instant coffee or coffee mm. blends. 
But Arabica has limited resilience to climate change, and research has shown its global production could fall by about 50% by mid-century. Wow. Whereas the Stanophila grows at a mean annual temperature of 24.9 degrees Celsius, which is about 1.9 degrees higher than Robusta and 6.8 Celsius higher than Arabica coffee, according to researchers. So this rediscovery may help in the future-proofing of a coffee industry that supports the economy of several tropical countries and provides livelihoods for more than 100 million farmers. That being said, there are about 124 known coffee species, but Arabica and Robusta really dominate the market here. Hmm. So the study did flavor assessments. They had 18 coffee tasting experts. Side note, would love to have a lead on that job. (laughs) This one was found to have a complex flavor profile with natural sweetness, medium high acidity, fruitiness, and a good body, which is the way Mm. it feels in the mouth. But this rediscovery was kind of a journey. In December 2018, Davis and co-authors Jeremy Hager of the University of Greenwich and a coffee development specialist, Daniel Sarmu, were actually looking for this in the wild. And they initially spotted a single plant in central Sierra Leone. There were a few examples that were held in coffee research collections, but mm-hmm. now the Stenophila is currently threatened with extinction because of large-scale deforestation in the three countries where it has been known to grow in the wild, which is mm-hmm. Sierra Leone, Guinea, and Ivory Coast. So, you know, we've got a potential coffee savior, but we got to make sure that we're actually allowing it to thrive and possibly studying it more to see what it can do to see us through the end of the world. <laughs> well, and I have a feeling like coffee drinkers are very driven. Like I'm not a giant coffee person myself, but I've also found that when I'm interacting with regular coffee drinkers, I like them much more when they've had their coffee. So I'm invested (laughs) in keeping the coffee flow going, even if I'm not a user myself. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. If we thought the Boston Tea Parties were a big deal, you just wait until we have climate change coffee shortage. And it's going to be intense globally. (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next link. All right. Well, last week we talked about white roofs for reflecting energy. And this week we're going to talk about blue roofs for a different kind of environmental impact. Specifically from CBC News, blue roofs could help reduce the flooding effects of big storms. Hmm. So in this case, the color is more metaphor than literal. A blue roof is one which has a water storage system that can collect rainwater during heavy storms and release it slowly over a few days so that the sewage system doesn't get overwhelmed. Which they don't really have a picture or anything, but basically it sounds what they're describing as a giant pool on your roof. Like you just have a big empty pool that you can Mm -hmm. skateboard when it hasn't rained and it fills up when it does (laughs) rain. But flooding is actually becoming more of a problem worldwide, partly because climate change is bringing more intense storms, but also because cities are made of concrete, which obviously can't absorb water. So when you cover the ground with a bunch of asphalt and other non-permeable surfaces, you get runoff. And the water is forced to accumulate in whatever drains it can find. Huh. So the bigger our cities get, the worse the flooding gets. Yeah. Bruce Taylor runs a company that provides businesses with sustainable solutions. And he says that water damage has become the leading cause of personal property claims in Canada, because this is from the CBC. Mm -hmm. He says that the stored water on top of a blue roof not only slows down the flow into the ground, which prevents the flooding, but also provides the building with a cooling effect through evaporation. And, of course, much of that water could be reclaimed for irrigation or other purposes. Hmm. Even better, there are blue-green roofs, which combine the benefits of a blue roof with the plant-growing features of a green roof, 
And some cities like Amsterdam have already installed some 10,000 square meters of blue-green roofs on their social housing complexes. And, you know, since the blue roof doesn't actually have to be blue, you could conceivably (laughs) have a blue-white roof, too, right? You paint the inside of the pool that reflective white, and then Mm -hmm. the water comes in. And I think a blue-green-white roof would be impossible because the plants (laughs) would cover up the white. So you would have to choose. Do you want a blue-white roof or a blue-green roof? But it's not a bad collection of color schemes overall, you know, as far as painting your roof and putting a pool on and growing some plants up there. Yeah. It's a little bit like the opening of Pokemon. You got to like pick your your main thing. Are you going to be a water type or a grass type or a white paint type? (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next link. All right. Well, Live Science is asking, why were the ancient Egyptians obsessed with cats? Hmm? Yeah, I'm assuming your answer is because they're awesome. Like, why wouldn't you be? (laughs) There are. And and there's a little bit of a content warning here if people are cat lovers, because we are talking about mummification and some of the uh, industry around that. So be Hmm. forewarned. But we know that the ancient Egyptians are just famous for their fondness of all things cat-like, right? They've got cat-themed artifacts like statues to jewelry. And we know that they mummified countless cats and even created the world's first known pet cemetery, which was a nearly 2,000-year-old burial ground that largely holds cats wearing remarkable iron and beaded collars. Hmm. So we're thinking that much of this reverence is because the ancient Egyptians thought their gods and rulers had cat-like qualities, according to a 2018 exhibition on the importance of cats in ancient Egypt held at the Smithsonian National Museum of Asian Art in Washington, D.C. So specifically, they saw cats as possessing a duality of desirable temperaments. So on the one hand, they can be protective and loyal and nurturing. But on the other hand, they can be pugnacious, independent, and fierce. Mm. Pretty godlike qualities if you're familiar (laughs) with, you know, a lot of different families of mythology here, right? So Mm -hmm. to the ancient Egyptians, this made cats feel like special creatures worthy of attention. So that might be why they built these big statues. For example, the Sphinx is perhaps the most famous example of such a monument. But to be honest, historians are not exactly sure why the Egyptians went to the trouble of carving it. Mm -hmm. Similarly, powerful goddess Sakhmet was depicted as having the head of a lion on the body of a woman, and she was known as a protective deity, particularly during moments of transition like dawn and dusk. Another goddess, Bastet, was often represented as a lion or a cat, and Hmm. they thought that cats were sacred to her. In daily life, cats were also loved because they obviously hunted mice and snakes. Some Egyptians would even name or nickname their children after cats, including the name Mit, which means cat for girls. Hmm. It's not really clear when domesticated cats turned up in Egypt, but we have found cat and kitten burials dating as far back as 3800 BC. Wow. Sadly, much research has suggested that this obsession was not always kind and doting, and there's evidence of a more sinister side to the ancient Egyptians' feline fascination. Apparently, there were likely entire industries devoted to the breeding of millions of kittens specifically to be killed and mummified so people could be buried alongside them. Um, Mm. This mostly happened around 700 BC and AD 300. In a study published last year in the journal Scientific Reports, scientists carried out x-ray micro-CT scanning on mummified animals. And so when they got their results back, the researchers realized the creature was a lot smaller than they had anticipated. So it was a very young cat 
but they just hadn't realized before doing the scanning because so much of the mummy, about 50% of it, was just the wrapping itself. Right. So when they, they saw it up it. on the screen, they realized it was young when it died. So apparently mm. it had been less than five months old, which Aww. was a bit of a shock to the researchers, right? Yeah. I mean, you would think people would want to be buried with their pet cat. Like this idea yeah. of like, let me just go and grab a brand new cat and then bury me with it. That says to me that the cat wasn't honored so much as like a tool. Yes. Like they imagine they're going to be chased by rats in the afterlife. And they <laughs> feel like they need a cat there with them. I don't know. That's yeah, weird. you're not off the mark there. They're thinking that, you know, obviously the practice of sacrificing cats was not a rare thing. They were often mm. reared for that purpose. And they even added it may have been fairly industrial where you had farms dedicated to selling cats. Mm. Not a lot has changed, right? <laughs> so instead of having backyard breeders for companion pets, they were thinking it was a means to appease or even seek help from deities in addition to spoken prayers. So kind of traditional animal sacrifice. I mean, you know, it's like you're a house guest. You got to bring a bottle of wine. But in this case, you bring a cat. Oh. And I guess in that case, the logic is like, oh, well, who wants an old cat? You want to bring a kitten. That's the cute gift. right? Oh, so. so horrible. And it makes sense, too, because like I've seen some of the mummified cats and you think like, wow, someone got, like you said, buried with their you know longtime companion. No, it turns out it's 50% packaging, like getting a bag of Doritos and figuring out it's like half full of air. What a bummer. Oh, no. <laughs> I know. I know. I I had to really kind of callous my heart to this one because I was like, yeah, cat worship. Oh, backyard breeders. Yeah. How little has changed. And we're so much more advanced. We only put them through pneumatic tubes. I mean, come on. That's an improvement. <laughs> oh, oh, this has been a rough episode for cat fans. Sorry, y'all. <laughs> Uh, next link. Next, next link. link. All right. Well, this one is called His Plane Crashed in the Amazon. Then came the hard part. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. So the pilot in question who crashed is named Antonio Sena, and he was flying for, it should be noted, an illegal mining operation in the Amazon when the single engine of his Cessna 210L just went dead. He calculated that he had about five minutes to find a landing spot, and he better make it a good one because the cargo he was carrying was 160 gallons of diesel fuel, meaning Oy. the plane would almost certainly explode on impact. <gasps> Nonetheless, he tried to aim for a spot that would be useful to him if he did survive, namely among some palm trees, because he said palm trees indicate water nearby. There you go. And it was a good choice because he did live. And he had just enough time to grab a pocket knife, a flashlight, a couple of lighters, and his cell phone before scrambling out of the cockpit moments before it did, in fact, explode into flames. Oof. So for a few days, he camped out near the wreckage, thinking it was his best place to be found and rescued. And search planes did, in fact, circle overhead several times, but they never saw him and they just went away again. He couldn't get enough signal for a call, but he had just enough battery left in his phone to turn on a GPS app which told him there was an area called the Paru River some 60 miles away that he knew to be inhabited. So he started walking. Wow. He kept himself to a steady but reasonable pace where he would aim east in the morning with the sun and then by afternoon he would settle in and start to make a camp for the night using palm branches for shelter. He said he'd usually sleep up the bank aways from the river because he knew predators congregate around the water's edge, but he was still besieged almost every night by packs of spider monkeys who wanted to destroy his shelter just because they're territorial. Like, mm -hmm. they weren't trying to steal anything or attack him. They were just like, get out. This is our turn. <laughs> <laughs> the monkeys did come with a silver lining, though, because he saw them eating a particular pink fruit known as a breu, 
which convinced him that it was safe for human consumption. He would usually only find one every few days, and at one point he found three small blue eggs from an Inambu bird nest, but that was it. Otherwise, he was almost starving as he walked the whole time. He kept going this way for 36 days until finally he stumbled upon a campsite of native Brazil nut collectors. Oh. And weirdly, the group hadn't actually foraged in that part of the forest for three years, but the group leader, Maria dos Santos Tavares, had recently lost her husband to coronavirus and their debts were mounting. So they went Ooh. deeper into the rainforest than they usually did, which probably is what saved Senna's life. Wow. By this time, he'd lost 55 pounds. <gasps> and Santos Tavara said, we lost a life and you gained one. I suppose that's how God wanted it. Aww. Senna was also quick to acknowledge that the only reason he survived was because he landed in a part of the rainforest that had not been stripped for mining by the people he was working for. He said, <laughs> if I had fallen somewhere in a deserted plantation site, I wouldn't have had water, shelter, or anything to eat. Oh, the irony. Yeah. He admitted he said he knew the gig was illegal when he took it, but work had become scarce during the pandemic and the small bar he runs in his native city of Santarem was failing. He said, I had to let go of my own standards to try to support myself through this tough period, and he swore now that he would never fly for wildcat mining again. Someone else will, which is sad, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> now we just need every other pilot in the region to crash and have a life-changing uh, <laughs> moment, and then it'll be fine. <laughs> Santos Tavares, meanwhile, got him handed off to a police helicopter and then headed back into the forest, where she intends to keep harvesting nuts for another month. You know, it seems really bizarre that on the one hand, he's about to die the whole time. And on the other hand, she's like, yeah, we're just out here working. Like, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but she probably had more supplies. So there is sure. that. Sure. Or just knowledge of the terrain and monkey behavior. You know, maybe That's they right. just want to, like, have a cut of the Brazil nuts. That's true. If you bribe the spider monkeys with Brazil nuts, maybe they leave you alone. That was yeah. his problem. Or you <laughs> can even delegate some of the gathering work to them. There's no telling. <laughs> Trained spider monkeys. <laughs> the new export. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next link. It blew our minds, quotes the Guardian, the surfers who braved sharks to ride Africa's mighty wave. So this oh. is an article about a new book called Afrosurf, which looks at Africa's overlooked surf culture and celebrates its heroes who would ride colossal waves at beaches they were often banned from. Hmm. So if you do want to surf Africa's biggest wave, which rises to, you know, 50 feet and crashes oh. down on waters filled with great white sharks, first you got to <laughs> take a boat out to the clashing currents of Cape Town's Hout Bay. Then you jump into the maelstrom, paddle like crazy towards the deafening roar of breakwater, and oh. suddenly it's right there under your twitching legs. Dungeons, <laughs> as this terrifying colossus is called, propelling you towards the shore. One of the first surfers to trace a line down this notorious wave's surging facade, Cass Collier noted, we felt like babies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I mean, 50 like... feet is insane. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and this was in the late 1990s. And even though Collier's parents were born in South Africa, were of Indian heritage, which meant the apartheid regime classified him as colored. But mm. when you're in the brutal, heavy surf, he says, all racial differences cease <laughs> to matter. Quote, your fellow surfer in the water with you is your brother. If anything happens, he's the one who's going to help you. So Collier went on to become one of the first non-Hawaiian surfers of color to hold a world title. Hmm. 
it's pretty amazing. They've got some pictures in here. I got to admit that my interest is somewhat peaked here. And at every pit stop, it also looks into the culture, like the music and art and、mm. folklore and food, because you know surfing is just as much lifestyle as sport. And it's not I mean, all just much is yeah yeah it's not all just blonde surfer stoners from California either. <laughs> <laughs> And so, one of the interesting parts of this book is that it potentially upends the narrative that surfing began only in Hawaii and then was later adopted by white Americans and Europeans, who then spread、hmm. it around the globe. So, according to the introduction in this book, in the 1640s, Michael Hemersam, who was a German goldsmith working for the Dutch West India Company. Watched children in what is now Ghana ride waves on wooden boards, and at the time he believed that this is how they learned to swim. But in recording this, he may have inadvertently created the first written account of African surfing.、Wow. And so, three centuries later, American director Bruce Brown landed in Africa to film segments of the classic 1966 surf documentary, The Endless Summer. And he actually went to Senegal, Ghana, and Nigeria. And you know, at the time, 1960s American director. His attitude was what he viewed as virgin territory. Obviously, had not moved on much from colonial times. He,、right. uh, at the time, boasted of surf that had never been written before. Even、mm -hmm. though, in his own footage, you can see children of Ga <laughs> ethnicity clearly using traditional paddleboards. Wow. So this attitude typifies the intentional erasure of this part of African culture, right? Seeing the boards in Ghana just didn't fit into this white colonial narrative, so they just kind of claim to have discovered it, or、yeah. maybe, <laughs> maybe this is how they learned to swim. <laughs> But by now, it's beyond question that the sport belongs to a much wider group of people. And Collier, who we mentioned earlier, was one of the first to make a breakthrough. So he grew up in the tough Cape Flats area and was pushed by his father to serve at the then whites-only beach as an act of political defiance.、Mm. So he did really well, but was still forbidden from surfing in South Africa's national events. So finally, the authorities relented. But by then, he'd already decided to compete abroad, and his mastery eventually won out. With fellow Rastafarian surfer Ian Armstrong, Collier won the 1999 Big Wave World Championship at Killers, which is a wild spot about 20 kilometers off of Mexico's Pacific coast.、Hmm. Because of that, he was probably better set up for success than the average Black South African.、Mm -hmm. So there is now a growing prominence of African surfing, and Afro Surf as a book is testimony to the growing diversity on African beaches. And this also includes women, right? There's a story in there about a Berber surfer named. Maryam, whose determination to surf her home beach of Tamrat in Morocco earned her a new name. They called her Mohammed because she was surfing like a boy. <laughs> <laughs> But competitive surfing still needs to catch up a little bit, and there's still this taste in everyone's mouth of the exclusivity of surfing, and some people are still scared to challenge the hierarchy. Or you know, they could be scared of the great whites. Like that doesn't necessarily、yeah. seem like a dumb idea to want to avoid great white sharks. <laughs> <laughs> your athletic pursuits. I think it's very cool. I'd love to watch footage of it if they can get a camera out there. I'll I'll watch、yeah. YouTube videos of other people surfing all day long. But I, and, you、mm -hmm. know, if you haven't seen Endless Summer, it really is kind of an astonishing documentary. Understand、hmm. that it's a product of its time and place, right? You know, but it had some of the most stunning surf footage of its time that still holds up decently well today. Yeah, I mean, if you think about a camera from the 1960s going out into the ocean, that's not, oh yeah. I mean, that's pretty impressive for the. Time. Oh yeah, this is pre-digital kiddos. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include 
fish sticks make no sense, where does a candle go when it burns, and Sisters with Transistors, inside the fascinating film about electronic music's forgotten pioneers. So all that and more can be found on damninteresting.com. If you like our podcast and appreciate our ad-free philosophy, you can support us at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.